Hey there, welcome to night school. Sunday morning night school, and I'm on my second cup of coffee here, which will do nothing for me, except maybe make me feel... Like, I'll, I'll, I'll psychologically know I had my second cup of coffee. That's all caffeine is to me at this point. It's psychological. I psychologically know that I've had my coffee. I haven't had an energy drink for maybe a week. It's been quite a while. Haven't been going overboard. Uh, I'm just trying. I'm trying to get, you know, it's not even for health reasons that I want to cut down on caffeine and energy drinks and all that. It's just purely so I can feel them again. It's like somebody, if you've ever, uh, you know, abstained from anything. Sometimes it's not because you think the thing you were doing was bad. It's just simply so you can experience it again because you you consume it, but you stop experiencing it, which sucks. <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully uh, I start to feel that way about caffeine because I didn't believe it or not. I didn't even used to drink coffee. I used to uh, I remember getting a I got a, an espresso double shot, one of those little cans they sell at stores. I got one of those at work one morning and I was floating around. I was like, man, this is great. This is a great feeling. And then I started actually drinking coffee. But you don't need to know my, my history with coffee. We need to get into the episode here. And I'm thinking about, you know, the words conservatism and progressivism. And I want to get away from the modern politics. I want to get away from the ways that we understand those words and just look at the ideas a little bit. Because when you think about conservatism... A lot of what it amounts to is like if you were sitting at a table with somebody, if you were sitting at a breakfast table and the salt and the pepper are sitting in the middle of the table and somebody uses it, like if somebody uses the salt, uses the pepper and puts them back and let's say they reverse the order that they were in or puts them in a slightly different place, the conservative tendency is going to be like, oh no, the salt goes over here and the pepper goes over here. The salt goes to the, to the left, my left of the pepper. And they, they need to be slightly off-center. Like, we don't keep... In this house, we don't keep the salt and the pepper right in the center of the table. We keep them kind of off-center. Because we've got to have room for the, the napkin holder. And, you know, the progressive is like, well, why not? Why can't we move the salt? Why can't the salt and the pepper be reversed? Why does the salt have to go on this side and the pepper have to go on this side? And the conservative is like, we've always kept the salt on this side and we've always kept the pepper on that side. Our family has always done that at the dinner table growing up. That's what my family did. And that's what we're always going to do because we've gotten by that way this far. We've, we've made it this far doing it this way. We've thrived so far. We've continu- I've continued to be able to put food on this table because the salt is over here and the pepper is over here. You know, there's this conservative tendency to become completely attached to something arbitrary just because it was always done that way. And that's okay If it's just an aesthetic choice, like that's the thing that I think conservatives miss out on is that if you focused on the fact that it's an aesthetic choice or there's some sort of just general, you just like it, that's more powerful to me than trying to come up with some sort of rationale for everything. Like if you say, you know, it looks better to me when the the pepper is on this side and the salt is on this side rather than having them reversed. It looks better. And the same is true for aesthetics, you know, and I think that's true for traditional architecture. And you can see where the word traditional is, you know, that's an amorphous, ever-evolving word. 
you know, strip malls are going to be considered traditional at some point. But when I say traditional architecture, I think you know what that means. You know, let's let's say, you know, antiques. You know, whatever your understanding of that word is today, I mean, we, we kind of know what that means. We kind of have a collective def- definition of what that means. But I think if you say, hey, to me, this looks a lot better. Traditional architecture looks better than a strip mall. It looks better than a some modern art building. Like if, you have, if you've ever seen uh, the EMP, the Experience Music Project, which is like this experimental style architecture. Oh, it's supposed to look like a smashed guitar. What does it look like to you? You know, you see things like that, and that's even old now. That's even traditional now. <laughs> the EMP in Seattle. But you see something like that, and you're like, yeah, this is not aesthetically beautiful. It's interesting, I guess. But things like that that kind of shock you with the with their interest. Like, this makes you think for a second. They get old. Because, I mean, ideally, and I, I don't really think about architecture much. Like, I'm really not one of these traditional people. But I think there is something to be said for older aesthetics, you know, stone, you know, columns. I think buildings look better that way. I think they are are more likely to appeal long term when they ha- when they look that way. Uh but for so for me it's just purely aesthetics. You know, like saying like I think it looks better when the salt is on this side and the pepper's on this side. But people like dig their feet in and they think that their entire they the entire foundation of their argument becomes some rationale for why something arbitrary should stay the way it is. But, you know, on the opposite side, it's just as arbitrary. Like, a lot of the progressive line of thought is, well, no, but I, see, I want to change the salt and the pepper around because uh, I can, and because I think, you know, I've I've felt uh, repressed in this household and I'm starting to think that it's all because the salt and the pepper were in the places they were all this time. And so they become attached to the idea of changing whether the salt is on the left or the pepper is on the left. And, you know, they want to switch those just to switch those. And part of it is just to piss the person off who wants them to stay the same. And then the person who wants them to stay the same just wants to piss off the person who wants to change them. So it's this song and dance, but that song and dance often ends up being about total nonsense. And the interesting thing about conservatism is watching it change, because we have these ideas of what it is today, which are different from what it was 10 years ago, or even five years ago, and that's different from what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I had that experience, I think a year or two ago, Uh, my mom's biological father, who she never knew, wrote editorials for a a, uh, Missouri newspaper, And he was a libertarian, you know, back, I don't know how long that term has been popular, but he was a self-professed libertarian. So he would write these rants in a newspaper and they were later collected into, not a book, it's not really a book. It's got kind of like a, like a spine, like a, like a plastic spine holding it together. It's not like a formally printed book, but it's a collection of his work. And my mom bought it just because she didn't know him. So she was interested in knowing more about her biological father. And in it, I was reading some of his rants, some of his editorials, because that's all an editorial is. It's a, you know, it's a published rant with a fancy name. But one thing, like, the points that he was hitting on, because, you know, ultimately his values were conservative, you could tell. Like, like a, lot of, a lot of references that 
you know, you'd still hear today from conservatives about family values, you know, decency, things like that, these general talking points. But when he got into the specifics, it was interesting to see how things had changed because as a libertarian, he was obviously opposed to excessive government regulation. And I don't know what year these were written. Let's say the 70s, probably a lot of them were in the 70s. But what he was really harping on were seatbelt laws, which you never hear people talk about today. You never hear even conservatives talk much about seatbelt laws. And that was a big deal at the time because that is an issue of personal liberty. You know, today people are talking about masks, which the argument is, oh, it does affect other people. Just because you don't care if you get sick without a mask, you know, you might get other people sick. But with seatbelt laws, it's not even, you, you, it really doesn't affect anybody else. Seatbelt laws only affect you. Yeah, they affect the person who has to clean up the, the car crash. And if you flew out the window because you weren't wearing a seatbelt, like, they're subjected to that. But for the most part, I mean, it's all about your personal safety. It doesn't actually impact anybody else's personal safety if you don't want to wear a seatbelt. Yet we have to. You get ticketed. You get pulled over. It's a major inconvenience as well as, uh, you know, you, you are punished. You know, it's, a, it's an inconvenience to you because you get pulled over and you get fined. You get in trouble. And, and conservatives didn't like that. And I still don't like that. I still don't understand why, like, it should be up to the person driving the car. The person driving the car should be able to say to their passengers, wear your seatbelt. You're in my car. This is my car. In the same way you can tell people coming into your house, take your shoes off. And if they don't, get out. There are little basic things that you have to respect within reason. You know, if, if you go into someone's house and they're like, you know, uh, Take your clothes off and change into this jumpsuit. You might say, I don't want to do that. And, you know, the person asking you to do that is weird. You know, if you told people, you have to wear this jumpsuit if you're going to ride in my car. That's a little weird. But there are certain things that just make sense. Don't wear your shoes in my house. Don't walk across my carpet with your dirty shoes. If you want to ride in my car, you have to wear a seatbelt. Because I don't want you to die in my car if we get into an accident. I don't want to be respon- I don't want to be any more responsible for your pain and suffering than I already would be in a worst case scenario. So wear a seatbelt if you're in my car. That makes complete sense. But the idea of forcing a driver, a lone driver, or or his passengers, his or, his or her passengers, uh, it turns out women drive. Uh, but no, uh, you know, forcing a a driver or or the passengers to wear a seatbelt doesn't make sense to me on a, on a personal liberty level. That's, you know, that's taken a, to me, it's, it's actually amazing that that talking point died. Like, it's amazing that conservatives ever let go of that. But if you look at the history of American conservatism, it's filled with stuff like that. It's filled with them making a big deal, ranting and raving about something like seatbelt laws and eventually losing and just moving on, which is why conservatism is so amorphous. Like, even though the idea should stay the same, You'd think from hearing from conservatives that they would always have the same values. But the reality is they don't, which is why 10 years ago, you know, the average Republican, the average conservative Republican would probably be like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with gay people. I don't want anything to do with a gay man. And then now, like in the last few years, it's like, look at we have the gay men on our side. 
you know, where it's actually a, it's like a mascot, you know, and, and yeah, that doesn't apply to all conservative Republicans, but a significant amount of conservative Republicans are cool with gay men today. And even kind of put them on a pedestal to be like, look, we don't hate gay men. In fact, we're cool with gay men. But we're not cool with all this other stuff. We're not cool with uh, sending, you know, people into the, into the bathrooms. But we're cool with, look at, we're cool with gay men. You know, so it's like, you can see where even something like that has changed dramatically. No, it doesn't apply to everybody. It might not apply to the evangelical right. But liberty-oriented conservatives, you know, are just like, yeah, well, sure, like, let, let's bring all the gay men in now. Whereas 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20, year, 20 years ago, that would have been completely unheard of. Uh, but uh, so you can see where it's, it's always shifting. And it's not that, it's not that uh, progressivism stays the same. And I think, you know, with progressivism, I, I've been able to watch that evolve firsthand much more. Like, I know conservatives, of course. Like, I do personally know conservatives. And the ones I know have stayed fairly consistent. Like, I have some older relatives who are conservative, and they've stayed overall very consistent. I haven't seen their values change much. But with progressives, I know of all kinds, you know, uh, people who are close to me, people who aren't close to me, all ages, I see where they change too, and, they, and, and the difference is they're pushing for change. Like their whole motivation is change, but where it becomes dishonest is they will say, no, I've always felt this way. Like even though a lot of the ideas they are pushing now are totally new, they're totally new to them. Like I never heard any progressives I knew talk much about uh, you know, some of the gender issues that are going on now, that everybody is just like, well, no, this is, this is it. This is what my values are based on. You know, it went from like being like, okay, there are patriarchal structures, there's sexism, to like, we need to destroy all of these constructs because they're totally social constructs. It's not like society is based on anything because that seems to be the big, I, I mentioned this a lot on here, but it, it seems to be so obvious to me that society was created based on existing ideas, biological, psychological, you know, man and woman created society. Society didn't completely create man and woman. And I don't say that rigidly. I don't say that to say that, like, that's it. That's all there is to it. No, but we have this idea, and I've heard this exact point. And I heard it actually come from somebody I know whose son was getting in fights and this person didn't understand why. Like this person's young son was getting in a lot of fights at school, was just causing a lot of problems, being very aggressive, and did not come from a, an aggressive household. You know, there was no obvious formula for why this kid was being aggressive. And one thing I don't ever do is I don't ever tell people, like, about their kids. Like, you know, I think one of the most obnoxious things you can do as a non-parent is to try to tell other people, like, why their kids are doing what they're doing or what they should do with their kids but I was really amazed that this person said, oh, my son is acting out because society has conditioned him as a man to act that way. And it's like, but yet you've given him every counterpoint. You've raised him differently from that. He, he goes to a school 
where that isn't encouraged. He doesn't watch macho stuff. Like, this kid is literally, you know, complete, I mean, he's completely removed from all of that. You've done everything that a person could possibly do in this society to remove him from what you see as toxic masculinity. And yet you're, you're, you're blaming society for conditioning him to be an aggressive, violent kid. And I don't know that he was like horribly violent, but just getting in a lot of fights, exhibiting aggressive behavior. And it's like, so, so you think that even with all you've done, the environment you've placed him in, everything you've taught him, which he understands, he's a smart kid, you, you think with all of that, the society is still getting one over on you. The patriarchy is still getting one over on you by encouraging him to act out in this aggressive way with testosterone, you know? And it's like, that's doing a disservice to the kid, in my opinion. You know, I'm not criticizing the parenting or anything, but it's just like, I heard that, and I tried to say that. I was just like, oh yeah, you know, that it sounds like Part of that is just he's a boy and he he has to get through that. And this person, though, doesn't believe in any of that. And that's where things get wild is this person doesn't actually believe that men have certain traits or, or are more likely. Let's just put it that way. We don't have to say like all men have a certain quality. But it it's true in my experience that no matter what environment, no matter what conditioning, no matter what a boy experiences, that there are certain patterns that play out. And understanding that is way more likely to help it. It's way more likely to help that energy get channeled to, to a positive end, which is why, which is funny, because it's like, it's all these things that have been in place forever, where it's like team sports. Yeah, you can see where team sports get out of hand. You can see where parents and, you know, people obsess over team sports, maybe a little bit excessively. You can see where team sports become... You know, you can see where bad things happen on football teams. When you get a bunch of boys together in this macho environment, you can see where sometimes that goes to bad places. But overall, I mean, the reason that exists is because that energy needs to go somewhere. And this war on team sports is insane to me because, you know, while I I stopped playing team sports in high school because I just had other interests, like I look back on those years, those many years of team sports, especially football, so positively. I'm so glad I experienced that. Uh, you know, for one, because it's like you get a lot of aggression out, which I didn't even think of at the time. Like, I didn't think, when I played football, I didn't think, oh, I'm getting all this aggression out, you know, but still, it felt natural to get that aggression out. It felt necessary to get it out. And the, the interesting thing about football in particular is there were players on my team that I just didn't like. There were guys I didn't like. And sometimes in practice, like if you had a, a tackling drill, you were more than happy to tackle that guy. Like, you are more than happy to have an opportunity to go at him. But then come game time, you're on the same team, and you know you're on. And as long as you don't have something pathologically wrong with you, you're going to work as teammates, and you're going to celebrate when you win. You're going to celebrate when you score a touchdown. And that's so important that you can not, like, I mean, there were guys on my teams who I never liked, and maybe they never liked me. But come game time, you are on the same team, and you know that. If your coach has done his job, you know that you are all on the same team. And I think it goes beyond coaching. I think the coach, in some ways, just has to kind of steer the ship a little bit. Because if you know you're on the same team, you ultimately will 
let all of your personal feelings drop and you will be like, you know what? Yeah, he's doing his job so that we can score, so that we can win, so that we can feel good, so that we can feel accomplished. And so while, yeah, team sports can veer in certain directions that aren't good, overall, they they serve such an important function. And I think that, you know, just even having a couple years experience, whatever it is, just playing team sports for a couple years can only be good for somebody. And I think if it is aggressive like football, there's something to be said for that too, to knowing what it is to safely, relatively safe. Yeah, people get hurt. I got hurt. I broke my arm. I got other injuries. Uh, But, uh, you know, to safely, like, fight, you know? And, And I, this friend of mine who was very smart, he was like, one of those guys who got straight A's, but was also a star athlete. We were friends for a few years. We were watching the high school guy. We were in junior high, and we were on the the junior high football team, and there was a day where the coaches of our team were like, we're going to go up to the high school and watch them play. You guys are going to go to this high school eventually. We're going to go watch them Friday night. As a team, we're going to watch their team. And my friend and I were sitting there, and my friend just turned to me. He's like, you know, like, look at this. He's like, these guys have to strap. We, I mean, because we were doing the same thing. He's like, we have to put on helmets and armor. Like, we have to put on armor to do this. Basically, he was saying, like, this is ancient. And it kind of blew my mind because I had never thought of it that way. I just thought, oh, it's football. Like, I see a football helmet, and I think, it's a, oh, it's a football helmet. It's this sport that I watch on TV. It's the sport that I play. I never sat there and thought, like, yeah, this is kind of medieval. These are helmets. This is armor. You know, it's a way to protect us from hurting each other, but it's also, it's, it's sort of a, a simulation of war. And not even sort of, it is. It's a, it's a total simulation of war. Like, if you think Call of Duty simulates war, play football. Because, I mean, it's a much more, you might not be pretending to shoot guns at people who don't exist, but you're actually out there wearing armor, hitting people, trying to accomplish a goal. So, you know, it is a simulation of war. And it kind of blew my mind when my friend sent that, said that because sent that. He texted it to me. No, uh, this is like 19, no, this is like 2000, year 2000 maybe. I don't know. But just the, the fact that he made that connection just watching these guys play, I was like, wow, you're right. But to go back to what I was saying about this kid that, you know, my friend's kid where it was just like this person didn't understand why he was behaving aggressively And it was unfortunate to me because while I don't know if more was going on, you know, I I can't possibly read into the entire situation. I don't know everything that goes on in this kid's life or in his head. But it was just weird to me that the parent was like blaming it all on society and the patriarchy in those words. Exactly. And I I dropped it. Like I tried to kind of make my point, but I dropped it because I was like, you know what? Like this it, it turned out this person did not believe that men have any inherent tendencies and at that once I realized that that was a part of the discussion I was just like you know this is only going to lead bad places because I don't believe all men should be a certain way I don't believe all men have to do a b and c to be men but I also recognize that men have inherent values and it's what I always talk about on this show where like getting into the the anti-team sports sort of thing there's this whole generation of people who experienced like high school stereotypes through TV and pop culture who didn't actually experience some of the things that are 
some of the negative things that are associated with that. Like there are people who went through high school and they might not have been popular, but they were never bullied beyond just like the natural sparring that goes on between people. They were never bullied. They were nothing cruel ever happened to them, but they kind of experienced that through osmosis because every pop culture teen story has that. Like if you watch enough TV shows, read enough books, comic books, whatever it is, where there's a bunch of just over-the-top bullying, you start to kind of think that that's what the experience is. You start to think that that's what the normal high school experience is, and you start to kind of blur the lines. Like you start to look at your own experience, and then like, let's say like, you know, some jock you know, ignored you or something. You know what I mean? It's like you th- somebody did something that was just kind of casually disrespectful. That becomes amplified. And while bullying does go on, cruel bullying does go on, I just, I've seen it among people I know where they've almost invented, they've almost invented this storyline where like the jocks bullied them in school. When in reality, I think they just saw that in pop culture so much. They heard that story so much. They wanted to be fighting against some, adversity so much that they kind of either exaggerated or even outright invented that sort of story for themselves. And part of that is just the whole anti-team sports thing. Like, cause I mean, it's the thing too, if you grow up and your idols are like rock musicians and artists, you'll hear them talk about that stuff. And they very well might've gone through more of it themselves. Although I've learned to not completely trust those stories. As I've said before, you'll hear actors talk about you know, they were like, oh, I was a nerd in school. I was so unpopular. And then it, you see a picture from their high school yearbook and they were a cheerleader. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you were such a nerd. You were such a nerd. You were on the cheerleading team and you were gorgeous. And that you might not have felt gorgeous, but come on now. Don't pretend you, you weren't. And I, I know somebody who did that. I know somebody who actually achieved a degree of success in a certain field and claims to have been something they really weren't. And I, I don't I don't hold that against them, but it's weird to see that. Like, and that might be how they truly feel. So I'm not trying to say they're they're deliberately lying, but it's weird how people who have become successful or who have become noteworthy in a certain way will sometimes invent this adversity. And I'm not saying they didn't feel that way. Because I mean you can walk down the street and if somebody doesn't smile, you can think, oh, they're deliberately not smiling back to me for a reason. When in reality, they might just be a stoic person. They might just be a person who doesn't smile at strangers, but you personalize everything. So it's like, it's funny how people can do that. But, uh, you know, this person I know who was very successful in their field has gotten, you know, a lot of attention for it. I'm not going to go into details, but I was just amazed that he uh, he's done some interviews and things I saw where he talks about. I don't know, he kind of, it just seems like he kind of invented this adversity when in reality he was a popular, charismatic guy. And maybe it was all in his head, you know, like I, like I said, I, I won't rule that out. I'm not saying he's manufactured something deliberately to lie or anything like that, but it's just weird to see that when you know that that wasn't the case. And uh, but this this I, this like kind of pop cultural idea of the underdog I think has become so popular, and you see it on American Idol, where you know somebody's going to be you know they're you know that they're putting somebody on a certain pedestal on that show when they give somebody a sob story when they say oh I I never you know I, I grew up with a single mother and uh, you know I I, did, I 
my eyes fell out at age three. You know, it's like, you know, whenever it has some sort of story like that, they're like, my, they put my eyes back in, but they never worked again. I'm just pretending to see right now, but my voice is, uh, you know, so I always knew that I had to work on my voice. You know, you have stories like that because like we like it's contrast, you know, it makes sense, but it's also manufactured or exaggerated. And we as individuals tend to do that too. We as individuals tend to do that. But to get back to what I was saying about men having inherent qualities and, and women have them too. Women are competitive too, but it, it does come out in my experience in different ways having been close to women, having grown up in a household of women, having had actual close female friends who confide in me. I learn, you know, while they might not represent everybody, I've certainly learned certain, I've noticed certain tendencies for sure. But with men, you know, there's this idea that, oh, it's all this toxic masculinity is conditioned. Oh, and team sports encourages it. Jock culture encourages it. And when I got involved in art and music, when I got deeply involved in art and music, I saw all of the same tendencies playing out, but in a much more hidden way. In a lot of cases, it's, it's hidden. It's, it's like people know that, uh, you know, because there's not an outlet to do it up front, you know, and you do see it a little bit. I mean, the rock star, the, the heavy metal musician, there's a lot of this like upfront male testosterone to that, which should tell you something. So you do see where it, it has an outlet in rock and roll, it has an outlet in heavy metal, it has an outlet in rap. You can see a lot of that kind of like, you know, look at how competitive rap is. Here it is an art form. Rap is an art form. It is a, a culture that's largely based around this art. Both aesthetically, you know, the aesthetics of it, as well as, you know, the actual music itself. But look at how competitive it is. It's like there's diss tracks, they're always you know, competing with each other, trying to outdo each other. And that's really no different than like guys trying to outdo each other on a football field. You know, I see it in heavy metal all the time. You know, it's way more upfront, but you see it like in everything. You see it everywhere. It doesn't go somewhere. Just because it's not having, just because you're not doing something with it athletically or physically doesn't mean that it just disappears. And that's kind of one of the myths of art. And I, I think I like more aggressive art and music. Not, it's not like all I like, but I think I, I've always gravitated toward that stuff because it is another outlet for those things. Not that I have some aggro aggression I'm trying to get out. Not that it's all about that for me. But I think that I do like when that's at play because when it's not, you see where it becomes so malignant. Because the whole like, you know, you see, you see it with visual art. You see it with like soft, like indie rock where those tendencies still play out in those circles as well. And I, I knew a bunch of friends who, I, I knew a bunch, I've known a bunch of people who were into indie rock, who played indie rock. I grew up with people like that. And these tendencies still played out among them, but it was actually more twisted. Because there was no real outlet, because they're playing this soft, sensitive music, and the aesthetics are all like neutral, the aesthetics are all autumnal, you know, it's not out front. You know, you're not using the art itself as the outlet for that. But those people are just as competitive. You know, they're just as likely to butt heads. But it comes out kind of in this, it's under the surface, where there's a lot more gossip. There's a lot more talking shit. They're not upfront about the fact that they're competing. 
and you can't escape competition. I've never been in an environment where men aren't competing. I've never been in one where I haven't noticed it. Like even being in an office, and I try not to compete. Like I try not to compete with other men. Like I'm always competing against myself, but there is still a tendency to compete. You still want to spar a little bit. And, you know, I've worked in offices before where there's multiple funny guys. There's multiple guys who are the funny guy in their friend group. And in the office, naturally what they do is they drop one-liners. But that becomes a competition. And you can feel that, like, like I, I went to work at a place where, you know, I, I do that myself. Like, if I'm at an office, like, to me, the easiest way, like, I don't like to talk about TV. I don't like to talk about just normal things. So it's, like, the easiest way for me to get along in a workplace is just to make, like, a snappy remark, like a, a witty remark or something. Not even, even if it's not something that I even personally find that funny, it's like, I'm just going to do this to get by. And it's usually appreciated. But every once in a while, you'll run into like, there's another guy in the office who does that. And he kind of thinks that that's his role. Because people do almost think of themselves like, it's not even that people are trying to model themselves after sitcoms. It's, it's almost like the society, it's like the society thing where, you know, people created society, society, didn't create people. Society then had an influence on who people became and it reinforced certain traits, which is why people get confused. You know, society has reinforced negative traits that already exist in us and caused them to mutate in certain ways. But society still came from people. It still mirrors something that was originally there among us. Sitcoms are the same way, where a sitcom is mirroring how people actually interact. And it's in this really stripped down yet also exaggerated, because that's kind of the weird thing about a sitcom, is it's both stripped things down to their essence while also caricaturizing and exaggerating that essence. So it's a weird thing. And, and because of that, because it's both stripped down and a caricature and exaggerated, we have a tendency to be like, reality is nothing like this. Reality is nothing like a sitcom when it is. You know, sitcoms are based on the dynamics that already exist in reality. They're condensed. You know, it's like people don't actually talk that way, but it's still mimicking what people actually do. But then, like everything, like society, you know, it's like people created sitcoms in as kind of a caricature of reality but then that caricature of reality further informs reality. And if you've worked in an office, you know that people kind of, they'll take on sort of a sitcom type personality. And especially when it comes to humor, where somebody, their sense of humor is pretty much like a sitcom guy. Like, oh, I'm the guy in the office who makes the one-liners. And everybody laughs for a second. You know, somebody takes on that role. And just like on a sitcom, like, you're not going to add in two characters who do that. Unless they're a duo or something, unless they're like kind of in cahoots or in competition. And there's probably been sitcom episodes about this, but like if you go into that environment and you're that guy too, or you just do what that guy does, he might be threatened. And you kind of get into this little competition. And I try not to get into that. Like I try not to be in that situation. Like I'm just trying to get by at the end of the day. But you can see where somebody, they're invested in this identity they have. And so oh, wait, no, 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 you can't be the funny guy. I'm the funny guy in this office. When in reality, work's a lot more fun if you just go, yeah, we're going to kind of trade off. And the, yeah, there might be a little, I guess, a little competition to it. But let's build off each other. 
And that's something like you can figure out who's insecure and who's not from that alone. Like if somebody makes a joke and you add to it, like genuinely add to it, not like you don't you don't say something in response that like cuts that person down. Like it's not a retort. But if somebody makes a joke and you go and this and people laugh, watch how that person reacts. Because there's a time and a place to just let a joke be standalone. And this is all stuff you can't analyze in the moment. This is all just intuitive. But, you know, watch how that person reacts. Like, first of all, there's a chance they're not going to laugh. Like, there was a guy that I worked with who just rubbed me the wrong way. And he he was the... I, this is an exact situation like this, right? I went to work at this place. There was a guy who had been there for a while. He was friends with the bosses. He was very insecure about women, about all kinds of things. I didn't hate the guy or anything, but it was just you could kind of tell what he was trying to do. He was kind of peacocking a lot and kind of peacocking a lot. But he he had established himself as the funny guy, but his entire sense of humor was ripping off Will Ferrell. Like he would make those same facial mannerisms. You could tell that he had actually spent time cultivating this Will Ferrell sort of comedy personality and it turns out he did, He lo- like, I'm not making this up, he loved Will Ferrell. Like, he would actually quote Will Ferrell. And that's a whole other thing. Like, the person in the office who just quotes existing sitcoms and existing comedy movies, like, yeah, it's comfortable. Most people laugh at that because it's familiar to them. Like, people like it when you quote, f- like, funny movies because it's something they know. And if you were to say the same thing without them knowing what it is, they might not actually even find it funny. But because they know what it's referencing, they think it's funny. It's an interesting dynamic. Uh, but, uh, you know, with this guy, it was, it was just interesting because I went there and, like, you know, I'm going to do what I always do, which is just, like, be pretty quiet in the workplace. And if there's an opportunity to, like, have fun and make a joke, I will. But I realized this guy did not like that. Like, he was the guy who would make a Will Ferrell face and do an exaggerated Will Ferrell voice. And, you know, I could tell, like, sometimes I would say something, and I could kind of see him, like, looking at me out of the corner of his eye, not laughing or fake laughing. And I was like, oh, this guy doesn't like that I came here and that I sometimes throw in my own one-liner, which to me isn't even that funny, but it's just, like, something I'm trying to do to get by. But people like that. They especially don't like it if you add to what they're doing. They see that as like a one-upping thing. That was something I learned about some years back, the one-upping accusation. Where it's I've only been accused of that once, actually, but it's something people say, where, oh, you're a one-upper. And I understand it in the sense that there, there are like practical conversations. Like there was a lady I worked with, actually, who everything you said, like, like if some, like somebody had a baby in the workplace, in the office, and and this person said to the woman, oh yeah, my baby was eight pounds. Like he was pretty big. And this woman goes, try 10 and a half pounds. My, my son was 10 and a half pounds. And just on a one-off basis, that's fine. You know, but I noticed like somebody mentioned buying a new car and they were like, I got a pretty good deal. You know, I got this new such and such for 8,000. She was like, I got mine for 6,000. You know, she was always trying to kind of beat somebody at whatever they were saying. So there are people like that. I understand that there's a person like that. But when it comes to humor, I think it's a little different. 
where if somebody says something like the best conversations in the world that I've ever had with my friends are when I say something, it's a volley where it's like, I say something, I throw it up in the air and if they don't have anything and we just laugh or, or they throw something in the air up in the air and I don't have anything and just laugh perfectly fine. But you have a certain chemistry and, and like chances are if one of my good friends says something funny, I will add to that or they will add to that. And, and that's how like the other day I was talking about my friendship with, with my old friend Nick where we have this mutant code language and it's, it's hilarious to us and I wouldn't expect anybody to understand it. But that, that mutant code language of humor has come through that process of just like one of us throwing something out the other one twisting it and adding something else to it. It's, it's this alchemical process, honestly. And uh, you can do that with all kinds of people, though. Like, if somebody is truly funny, you can do that with them whether you're good friends or not. You can do that. Like, I've had coworkers where we do that. Like, I've been sitting around at a company function before, and somebody says something, and I say something, and they say something, somebody else says something, and we're all just having a great time. But every once in a while, you have somebody like this Will Ferrell guy, where he's sitting there, and like, it's not okay for you to add your own ingredients to this. And he's going to shut it down. And I had that experience with an old family friend, which was really disappointing. There was this old family friend who was kind of, you know, I'm not going to say too much about him, but he was always really cool to me, an old guy. And, uh, you know, he, but he, he was just filled with one-liners, like kind of hokey, old-timey one-liners, but he was known as the funny guy. And uh, I was just like, huh, you know, like, I, I just always laughed. Like everything he said, like every time I visited him, you know, my family knew him very well and Every time I visited him, I was just always laughing. And then I reached an age where I, I think I was an older teenager, maybe a young adult, and we had dinner with them. And he was doing what he always does, just throw out one-liners. And I added, I added to one of them. It wasn't like I was trying to do this to him all night, but at one point, I added something to one of his one-liners. Like I was like, oh yeah, and this. And I, he kind of turned his head and just looked at me. And I was like, whoa. That was weird because I don't think what I said was like, I don't think it was a challenge to him. I don't think what I said was stupid. Like it wasn't like a, that was stupid. It was like, don't mess with what I'm doing. Like, don't interfere with my shtick. This is a one man show. Like that, that was the vibe that I got from it. Like, Hey, Hey kid. Like he's like, he's like, Oh hey, And then the, the, the top hat falls off the head and then the, a bunny crawls out of the top hat. And then I'm like, yeah, and then the the <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know how I would add to that. And then the top hat flies away and then he turns to me and he's just like, "Hey kid, this is a one-man show." That was the vibe I got. And I was like, that was weird. Like now that I'm an adult and I'm capable of volleying with him cuz as a kid you can't compete with that. Like as a kid you're like, "Oh wow, this adult man just throws out all these one-liners. I don't I can't possibly compete." But it was like the first time as an adult that I had been around that and I I didn't realize that he saw me as competition until that moment. Like he saw me saying something funny as competition. And again, it goes back to that thing I always say where you don't have to find what I'm saying funny. You have to know that it's like an attempt to be funny. And unless you, unless I, what I said is just really obnoxious, like, like, and I mean, there's a chance, like maybe I'm wrong and it was what I said was really stupid and unfunny. 
And he was le- he was subtly let not so subtly letting me know. I don't know. Maybe that's it. I don't think so. I got the distinct vibe that he saw me doing that as competition. Because as I said, it's like you can't take the competition out of the man. You can't take it out of women either, but it comes out differently. And I brought that up with my mom. I brought it up later. I think it was on the ride home. I said, hey, what was up with that? Like, I, I always thought of him as like kind of like a cool uncle type guy who's very funny. And I tried to say something funny in response and he was not having it. Like he, it wasn't that he wasn't having the specific thing I said. It was that I could tell he didn't want me to, to even try. He wants to be the only funny guy in the room. He wants to be that character in the sitcom. And she was like, oh yeah, he has a long history of that. Like it turned out there was a whole story which kind of justified my feeling where she was like, yeah, have you, have you ever noticed that he doesn't have any male friends? And we knew these people well, so this was something like we could observe. She was like, yeah, have you ever noticed that he does not have any male friends? And I was like, you know what? You're right. And and they, like some, some friends of theirs came up in conversation earlier that night. They involved like a husband and he, he said something bad about the guy. And I was like, you know what? That's an interesting observation. She was like, yeah, they often have problems with other couples and when there's like another male involved because he's extremely insecure and I was like that makes total sense I just didn't think that it would apply to me you know I've been like this nephew to him my entire life he really has done some cool things for me but it's like I was old enough to be competition and in his case like his thing is comedy or like one-liners, and it was just a really weird realization where it was just like, and then my mom's saying too, have you noticed that he doesn't have any male friends? Because that's the thing about some men deal with that need to compete by simply not having any friends. They're not able to maintain them, or they specifically like shut them out of their lives, and that's a real thing. It's interesting, is that some men can't handle having friends, and uh, somebody pointed this out about somebody else that is my age, in a group of friends I have, I'm not going to go into details, but uh, somebody pointed that out to me who's never even heard this story. Like this other friend of mine has never heard this story about this family friend of mine, but he was telling me about this other guy and he was like, yeah, have you ever noticed like he can't have male friends? And I was like, whoa, you're right. It was the same exact thing. And it, in this case, it had nothing to do with comedy, but it just had to do with like competition. And I was like, wow, I'm, I've never thought about that. That Yeah, like, because this particular guy we were talking about is a friend, but he's, he's somebody who kind of always keeps his distance from the other dudes. And I always just thought, oh, he's a very stoic guy. You know, I'm like that. There's some people who probably feel that way about me. But my friend pointing out, like, yeah, if you notice, like, he, he can't handle being close to other dudes and somebody would say, oh, it's some latent homosexuality. No, it's, it's just competition. It's just testosterone. It's just this like need to be competitive. And some people embrace that. Like some people embrace that. And, you know, for me, I had to work through it because my best friend growing up, like he was like the other artist in class. We were the two kids who drew cool looking renditions of superheroes. And there was an element of competition. Like when we were sitting there in class or sitting at home drawing with each other, and we enjoyed drawing with each other, there was always an element of competition. Like I would always be looking at what he was doing and think, oh, he's doing better than I am. But it didn't take away the enjoyment. Like we loved sitting there. Like everywhere my best friend and I went, Nick, the guy I always talk about, 
everywhere we went, we brought tablets and pencils. And so we would just, if there was downtime, we would be drawing. And there was absolutely an element of competition. Why wouldn't there be? We're two boys, best friends, the same age, both into the same things. The two, you know, I don't want to say we were the best artists in our class, but like as far as what we did, I would say we were, we were the best at drawing superheroes. Let's put it that way. And so we would draw these characters, we would, and we would make up characters. We would do all these things. And I remember, like, I would be looking at what he was drawing, and, and like, that's the interesting thing about someone else's art. Like, there's a guy I know in town here who's an amazing artist, and every time I see his art, I'm just like, Ugh. like, I feel that competitive spirit. Not in a malignant way. I just think, like, oh, I've got to up my game because he's gotten so technically good. And this guy I'm talking about in town here, he practices. Like, he actually, like, practices technique, which I could never do. I just don't have the focus to, like, practice, practice, practice technique. But when I see his art, I always think, like, man, like, he's a... Not that we do some... We don't even do anything similar. But I see his art, and I kind of think, like, I don't see any of the imperfections. I just see how good this guy is. And that's the funny thing, though, about your own art, is you only see the imperfections. Whereas somebody else looks at your art... And they see, they're like, they probably think like, man, like they see it as, they see everything as deliberate. Because I think that's like the interesting thing about somebody else's art is you see it and you see everything as deliberate and cohesive. And even if something is a little rough, like even if there's a little rough edge, you're almost like, oh, he meant to do that. It evens it out. It gives it balance. And they do the same thing to you. So that's an important thing to remember if you're a creative person is that, the thing that seems like a fatal flaw in what you do is because you made it. And that doesn't mean that you don't make fatal flaws. That doesn't mean there aren't bad or stupid things in your own creativity. But it's just you have a tendency to look at other people's art and just see it for what it is and think that's good or that's bad. You give it the benefit of the doubt. That's an interesting thing. Like I don't typically like, yeah, there are things that I will be exposed to creatively for me, it's more like that's a bad idea. Like I'm way more focused on like someone's intent or the idea they had and whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. But when it comes to actual technical proficiency, if it communicates an idea, I'm way more likely to give it the benefit of the doubt on a, on a technical level and be like, oh, they meant to, they meant to do it that way. And it's really impressive. And I, I'm starting to feel kind of not envy it because it's different. It's not envy. It's not jealousy. I would just say it's the spirit of competition. It's another man doing something and it might be similar to what you do or in the general field that you work in. And you think, hmm, I've got to up my game. And that's a healthy thought. It's not screw this guy. I never see another guy's art and think like, screw this guy. I wouldn't say never, but I, I rarely see somebody's creativity and think like, screw him for doing that. Usually it's like if it's if if what somebody does is good, I think, man, I've got to I should do better, which is a very healthy thought. And it's not insecurity. It's just sort of like it's just the spirit of competition. And it does come out through art, which is why I started talking about this, where no matter how much you repress it, no matter how much you act like team sports are toxic masculinity, you know, it's like that is going to come out no matter what you do. If you're a man, and if you're a woman, you compete too. I know women compete. I know how competitive women are. 
but I also, I'm not going to pretend I know what it feels like. I don't know. That's why I don't talk about that because I don't actually know what, what that's like. I would be way outside of my wheelhouse to, to really get into it. I only know that it exists. I know it exists in women. I could comment on it, but why would I? It's not my job. This isn't either, but I at least know what I'm talking about. And I've had the opportunity to see it play out in so many different fields. I mean, it's why team sports are always in my mind. It's, it, you know, it's why I, I can't not like, once you see something, you can't not see it. And once I recognize that that same spirit of competition exists in indie rock, which is something I was never involved in, but still like I've known people who were involved in that. And I see the same tendency play out. I've seen where their masculine energy tries to play out. In that case, it ends up being weird and twisted. And I think there's a reason why I was never interested in that stuff much. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it ends up playing out in metal. It ends up playing out in experimental music. You know, that was, that was a big realization for me is getting involved in experimental music and realizing that, oh, all of this stuff is playing out here too. I think that's where my mind was blown the most because experimental music likes to pride itself on existing in the abstract, no foundations, no backgrounds. It's just kind of this big open space where you can do whatever you want and think whatever you want. Well, guess what? Man is involved, therefore some of the same tendencies, some of the same impulses, some of the same patterns inevitably play out. And in that case, it ends up being twisted too, you know, because people are in denial. Because the more you deny it, because that's what I have to say about team sports, is that nobody's in denial about it. And yeah, it can get bad. We, we all know the stories of like crazy things that football players have done to each other in the locker room, foot, that football players have done at parties. You know, we've all heard those stories. But, uh, you know, I, I think that what makes it ultimately healthy is that nobody has any illusions about what's going on. They know that at practice, you are competing against each other. They know at the game, you are competing against the other team. The element of competition is just right out front. So when the element of, of competition gets buried, it's inevitably going to get twisted. And people are going to be in denial. And they're gonna, it's going to come out in far more catty ways, in my experience. That doesn't mean you can't transmute it. You know, it's almost like Napoleon Hill when he talks about sexual transmutation, where it's like, I think you can transmute competition, but you can't really get rid of it. You can kind of transmute competition, like you can take that spirit and focus it inward or focus it directly onto what you're doing and not see yourself as like indirect competition with a specific person or thing, but kind of transmute that energy toward a specific goal which is really what competition is all about to begin with. I mean, competition, I think, is meant to be transmuted. I think it's meant to be channeled to a specific purpose. Um, so I don't, I don't think that's crazy at all. But yeah, growing up like with a friend who drew all the time, and we would sit there drawing, and he was the other artist. He was the other, he was the other kid who drew things like I drew. And you would sit there, and like I would look at his drawings, and in the same way that I look at artist now and I think man like he's he's getting really good I've got to up my game I would see what what Nick was drawing and I would think like man that's looking really good I've got to I've got to up my game over here meanwhile little do I know he's looking over at me he's thinking the same thing and that's the beauty of it because 
we're actually both pushing each other. And we're not jealous, we're not envious, but we have a competitive spirit and we're thinking, oh, you know, he has a good idea or he's doing something cool. I want to do something that's even more cool. And we're not going to imitate each other, but we're going to, it's pushing each other. There's a psychic tension to that and we're pushing each other. There's a spirit of competition. And, you know, that happens with, with comedy, too, like talking about the workplace, where it's like some of the most fun I've ever had in the workplace is when I say a one-liner and somebody else throws one out, too, and they build. It's building. Like someone who stops abruptly and goes, don't step on my toes, you know, somebody who just stops dead in their tracks and is like, oh, no, 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 I'm that character. I'm the funny guy. Don't mess, don't mess with me. I'm the funny guy. Oh, you're a one-upper. I say something funny and you have to, like, steal my thunder. You don't ever want to steal someone's thunder because it's possible to do that. But at the same time, like, to me, life is all about building on things. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Funny comments that make somebody else think of a funny comment, whether you find it funny or not, should be welcome. They're at least trying. And you have to, again, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, with that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, I don't know, you know, this is one of those things where it's like some people just have problems with that. And, you know, all this came about cause I was talking about like kind of the literal definitions of conservatism and progressivism. I don't know that I have too much more to say about that. Cause I think these other things are actually more interesting. I guess it came about cause I was talking about like certain inherent qualities in men and, and saying that somebody would be like, Oh, you're discluding women. You're discluding non-women by talking only about men because that means nothing. Society created that idea. And it's like, I will hold fast. I, I will hold my ground on the idea that society did not create men. Society did not create all of these tendencies in men. It may have reinforced them. It may have caused them to mutate in certain directions they wouldn't otherwise have mutated. But this existed before society or simultaneously at the very least. All these things existed alongside the creation of society. And I would say before society, if you can even pinpoint the creation, the creation of society, when everybody met and decided that we were going to be a civilization with a name, you know, as if that happened. But uh, it's one of those things, though, where it's like there are certain inherent qualities, and I know they exist because I have experienced them over and over again. And I'm not afraid to have those challenged. I guess to go back to the conservatism thing, I'm not afraid of my qualities as a man being challenged. Like, I'm not afraid of the color pink. I'm not afraid of crying. I'm not afraid of these things that people say are unacceptable in macho circles. Because I actually haven't experienced much of that. Like, I, I have never known men, and, and I've been around a lot of different types of men in my life. I've never known men to be cruel. I mean, some men are always cruel, but, like, I've never known men to be excessively cruel when a man cries for the right reasons. But I think the fact that there that there is a perceived right reason to cry gets twisted by some people. Like, if a male friend of mine is crying about the death of his mother, the death of his animal, something serious, you know, I don't, I, I never feel uncomfortable with that. I think, like, my friend needs to cry because something happened to him that makes people cry. I don't even, it's not like I think that. 
It's not like I rationalize it, but that's what I know. My, I know that. But if a friend of mine is crying for some bullshit reason, it's disgusting. It's just like, you really, you shouldn't be crying about this. I'm not going to shame them for it, but there's just a feeling inside of me that's like, this isn't a reason to cry. And I feel like other people have treated me the same way because I've known, you know, a lot of stoic, macho men. You know, a lot of the people, a lot of the men that I grew up with, like when I was a boy, were very stoic. Some of them macho, some of them uh, just, you know, definitely, like I said, the older men in my family lean heavily conservative. They never shame me for expressing emotion. They never tried to tell me that men do this or men don't do that. And so, like, people who talk about that stuff, they don't even know what goes on. Like, they don't even know what goes on between men. And that's, I think, the, the, the most difficult part, is they don't even know what goes on between men in the same way that I'm not talking about what goes on between women. While I have observed the competitive spirit among women, I'm not going to pretend I know all about it. I wouldn't be able to talk this way about it without just, I'd be improvising. It'd be just me playing pretend. But people talk about like toxic masculinity as if they've actually experienced what goes on internally between men. And the crying thing is an interesting one because like I've had girlfriends who are like, you know, it's totally okay to cry. I think it's totally fine that men cry. And then if you cry for some bullshit reason, you can just sense that they are disgusted. You can just sense that they are uncomfortable and it's not, and I wouldn't turn around and say, oh, society conditioned you to, to feel that way. Oh, the reason why you're disgusted with the fact that I got drunk and cried about something stupid is because uh, society conditioned you to be that way. Even though you're this liberal feminist who, you know, hates toxic masculinity, you're uncomfortable with my crying because you were conditioned by the patriarchy to feel that way. No, it's because something about men crying for bullshit reasons makes everybody uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable. And I don't and I, I'm not I'm not even afraid to cry for bullshit reasons. So there's something to be said for that. There's something built into us and I don't think that's conditioning. I truly don't feel that's conditioning. But in my experience, like even the most stoic macho men they're not going to hold you, you know, they're, they're not going to hold it against you if you cry because something very serious happened. Yeah, you're going to be able to find men who will do that. You're going to be able to find those men. Like, they exist. Everything exists. Everything you can conceive of pretty much exists. You know, there's, you know, so it's like you can find those exceptions. You can find environments. And, and you know, maybe if I grew up in the South, maybe if I grew up in the Midwest, I'd be singing a different tune. Maybe macho men on the West Coast are fundamentally different, sure. But that should tell you something in and of itself, you know, that it's, I don't know, that should just tell you something, that certain qualities still exist, even here, and they're not always malignant. Like, how dare you cry about the death of something or someone you loved? Yeah, I've just never seen that. I've never once seen that play out. Um, but uh, with the conservatism thing, you know, this tendency to be like, this is the way it was, and this is the way it always was, and this is the way it always will be, because this is what's worked so far. You know, while I have conservative tendencies, you know, I don't relate to that. I'm not afraid of change. I just want change to be meaningful, deliberate, and for 
it to actually make sense and not just be change for the sake of change. Like, it's something you see in certain genres of music, where I love watching a genre of music evolve. It's cool to look at the history of heavy metal and see where it evolved out of, you know, the hard rock of the 70s. I don't need to give you a VH1 history of heavy metal here, but it's like, it's interesting to, to hear it progress. And, and to hear it progress naturally. Because you don't listen to the history of heavy metal and think like, you know, while some groups made a big jump, like you'll, you'll be listening and you'll be like, oh, this group made a huge jump to sound like this. It still is somehow natural. On an evolutionary level, it still somehow makes sense. Like they had to do it and it ended up sounding right. But then you'll hear stuff where groups, like it's like what I was talking about recently about like hybrids where it's like, oh yeah, this genre has reached a dead end. So we're going to be a black metal free jazz band. Because hybrids have no life beyond that moment. It's like a mule. You can breed those two things together, but it's not going to produce any life beyond that. It's a dead end of an idea. It's a novelty. It's a genetic novelty. And so like, and, and the evolution, you know, isn't going to go there. It's not that people who evolved a genre didn't combine influences and ideas, because of course they did. Of course they did, you know. But the difference is, is they were able to somehow synthesize it all perfectly. And with that, though, it's like there's an element of conservatism. Because there's a lot of conservatism in art and music even rebellious music where somebody says, you know what, like, we're not going to go too far. Like, we want to do something unique and new, but we're not going to try to mess up the whole genre. Like, we're not going to try to turn the whole genre upside down. We're not going to try to offend the traditions of the genre. And that's something you can see, like, like speaking of black metal, which is something I don't, I don't like to talk about on here much, uh, just for personal reasons. But uh, with black metal in particular, there was a phase around like the mid 2000s where a lot of bands were kind of like taking this, the shoegaze trend was really big because somebody realized that like older black metal bands had ethereal guitar sounds. And somebody was like, that kind of reminds me of shoegaze music. That kind of reminds me of shoegaze. Shoegaze? Shoegaze. It reminds me of shoegaze. Shoegaze. Uh, somebody who like made that connection because it turns out you can make connections between things. We don't have things aren't as different as you think they are in the world. It turns out you can hear an ethereal black metal riff and think this sounds like shoegies. But somebody was like, I'm going to take that very literally and I'm going to make a shoegies black metal band. You know, somebody did that. Many people did that. It became a trend. And then some people were like, that's not enough. It's not enough to just make this very deliberate, literal, shoegaze black metal band. It's not enough just to do that. We're also going to completely turn the aesthetic upside down. We're going to have photos. We're going to have bright, full-color photos of the city and people. Our aesthetic is going to be the complete opposite of the genre. We're going to challenge the norms. And you see that and you know exactly what they're trying to do. It doesn't come across authentic. It's not that they should have done the opposite and been like, we're going to have high contrast photocopy artwork of forests with a very obvious traditional logo. It's not that they had to do that. 
But it's that they, you can see where they deliberately tried to challenge all of the norms and they blew their load on it. And that load goes nowhere, baby. So it's just that sort of thing where conservatism and progressivism, I mean, those words, the word progressive is a core part of music, progressive rock, progressive metal, progressive everything. So you can see where, you know, those ideas play out creatively and, you know, being progressive is cool, but not for the sake of being progressive. It's why progressive for the sake of progressive just often ends up being some sort of technical wank. Whereas a band can actually be progressive by being traditional. Like there are bands who, who have a sound, like their sound is like 90% like every band that came before them in the genre. But they do something so subtly different. It might just be their note choices. They might simply choose certain notes that other bands haven't chosen. And those notes aren't disruptive. They, they make a new kind of sense in the context of what they're doing. And that's interesting that they can do that. It's interesting that somebody can do that. They can subtly progress the genre and create something unique, even though they're not tearing things down. And they can do that visually as well. They can choose album art that is maybe not fundamentally traditional. And tradition is sort of an absurdity in these counterculture worlds because you figure the people you're influenced by were doing something completely new and not quite traditional, but yet everything becomes traditional, which is my original point of this whole thing, that even the salt and pepper shaker's location on the table at breakfast can become a tradition. And somebody's like, no, you don't move them. This is how it's always been. You know, you can become conservative about anything is my point. And you see this in music where it's like, I only like bands that sound like Hellhammer. I only like bands that sound like Celtic Frost. And uh, how how many bands like that do you want to listen to? Well, it's cool to hear like tribute bands. It's cool to hear bands that do things that are similar to older bands. It's like, how much do you want to hear that's like that? You know, how that, that becomes a novelty unto itself. Tradition becomes a novelty. Tradition becomes a novelty. And going back to the salt and pepper shaker on the breakfast table, that's a novelty. It has no actual meaning... It has no meaningful impact to keep the salt on this side or the pepper on this side. It has no meaningful impact on anybody's life where those are. You're going to have to use them both. As long as they're on the table, in the center of the table, it doesn't matter which one is on which side. Yeah, if they're in a little holder, if they have a little holder and one side says S and one says P... Like, you want to put the salt in the S side and the P in the P side. That makes sense. A holder has been built. You might as well, you know, you don't need to disrupt that unless you're having a good time with it. Unless you're just like, yeah, we're going to be the, we're the family that puts the salt in the salt section, or, or we're the family that puts the salt in the pepper section of the holder and the pepper in the salt section because we're zany, you know, unless you're trying to be zany. It's like, just put the salt on the salt side, but... Unless you have a holder specifically built for each one, you know, it actually has no meaningful impact. And that's an aesthetic choice. You know, that's an aesthetic choice. But there is no real aesthetic to, like, where the salt goes or where the pepper goes as long as they serve their function. But people can become conservative about anything, and they're like, keep it where it goes because it's always been there. And that's, that's sort of—there's something lazy about that. It's a lazy way of thinking— 
And you're blowing your load, again, that term, uh, you're blowing your load on that when you should be focusing on things that actually matter. And you know what? As the pattern goes, too, it's like conservatism changes. And it's like you don't hear conservatives talk about seatbelt laws anymore. You just don't. Even though that should still be at the center of everything they talk about. Like a policy-based conservative should never have let go of seatbelt laws, yet you never hear it. Every once in a while, like I've heard my dad mention seatbelt laws because, you know, he still feels the same way about those. And, and he, there are times where he's, he doesn't wear his seatbelt and he's gotten pulled over for it. And that is a real liberty issue. In your own vehicle that you own, you have to do this thing that only impacts you. That, to me, seems like it should have never been let go. But what you see in the history of American conservatism is continually letting go of things. You know, I think it's, it's good for everybody that conservatives are way more receptive to gay men today. It's good for everybody that conservatives are, what, are much more tolerant of gay men. But it shows you that, you know, conservatism lets go of things, like where you wouldn't have seen that 10 or 15 years ago at all. It would have been shocking to hear that conservatives are propping up gay men as part of their platform to be like, see, we're not hateful. You know, you just wouldn't have seen that. And so it shows you where the window changes. And the window changes for progressives, too, except there's there's a dishonesty to all of it, where it's kind of like, I think what, how I got going on the whole like gender thing was just that a lot of like what I would call maybe like middle of the road, and I don't mean centrist, but I just mean like mainstream leftists that I know had never heard of, you know, these gender issues 10, even five years ago. And now that they've been informed and they know that this is like crucial to their identity and maybe they even believe in that stuff. They're like, I always, I, I always felt this way. Why aren't you on board? Oh, you're hateful. Even though you think the same way I thought two years ago, I'm going to pretend like I've always thought this way. When in reality, it's like, no, progressivism is, it doesn't really have this, you know, it, 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 it like prides itself on mutation and it mutates just to mutate. But when you do that, when you mutate just to mutate, you get like weird stuff sticking out of your skin. You almost become like some ridiculous, like, it's like Ninja Turtles comics back in the day. If you ever read like the old Ninja Turtles comics that were based on the cartoon, not not like the Eastman and Laird ones where they were like a little more dark and violent, but the ones that were based on the cartoons were very colorful. They would create so many mutants. Like there was always another frog man with accessories. And you would see that they would put accessories or features on a guy just to put them on. They were totally non-functional. Like a guy would have like a strap on, you know, and you saw this too with like uh, Rob Liefeld was notorious for it, the, the image comics artist, where he was notorious for like giving guys pouches. Like a guy would have like a hundred pouches spread out across his body. He would have like a strap around, around his thigh that was just covered in little pouches. And then he would have one around his arm. And it was like, what are all those pouches for? And it was just for decoration. And so in that way, like, I, I see progressivism, it kind of mutates just to mutate and develops all these little pouches. And at some point you go, what are all those pouches for? And then they, they take on their own conservatism where they're like, we need those pouches. Those pouches are so important. And it becomes like the salt and pepper argument again. 
where you can see where progressives are suddenly like, no, 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 you can't be on the right side of history if you don't have a hundred pouches distributed across your superhero costume. And your superhero costume, it has to be these colors. It has to include all of these colors. Oh, your superhero costume is uh, red, white, and blue, huh? I'm starting to wonder about you. Where are the other colors? You know, it becomes like that sort of argument. And so you can see where these things both have their own, like conservatism becomes progressive because it can't hold on to it, what it values. Like eventually the salt and the pepper will be moved and conservatives will become attached to the new location as if that's what they always valued. Even though 30 years ago they were in a different spot and the conservatives were like, don't move them. Eventually, the progressive will move them. Even if it's a compromise, they will get moved. But then the new conservative is like, that's just where they are. And that's how they always were. And don't move them again. And the progressive might very well move them back to the location they were in 30 years ago. And the new conservative will be like, don't move them back there. That's, that's not where they belong. So it's like, this ga- it's like this pattern, this back and forth, this dance. And a lot of good actually comes from that dance. A lot of good actually comes from the dance between, and again, I don't even mean these in their strictest political definitions, but in their just general definitions of conservatism and progressivism as simply ideas that can apply to everything, that can apply to music outside of politics, that can apply to creativity, that can apply to just your interactions with another person. Because, I mean, you can kind of see where, you know, even though the, 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 the funny guy in the office who does Will Ferrell impressions, that's kind of a conservative approach in and of itself, even though it's rooted in insecurity where he doesn't want anybody to, like, steal his, his amazing spotlight, that amazing spotlight of people chuckling when you do a Will Ferrell impression. Like, even though, um, even though there's, like, an insecurity to that, there's also kind of a conservatism where it's like, I'm going to choose a sense of humor that is already completely established by a mainstream actor comedian who everybody and, and all the references I, I make because like that, that guy in the office, uh, like I would say like 90 percent of his jokes were from uh, Anchorman, Anchorman, 90 percent of his jokes are from Anchorman and everybody knew it. It's like he just does Anchorman impressions and I, I've never even seen Anchorman. But I knew I know enough about Anchorman to know where the jokes came from. I've seen clips. People have referenced it. And that's honestly a very conservative approach to being funny, to think like, I'm just going to quote somebody who everybody's already laughed at. I'm going to quote somebody who everybody's already heard from. And to that guy, like adding a unique joke to something he said or me just add me just making a unique joke on its own, whether you find it funny or not, that's actually the progressivism in that situation. So you need both of these things. Like, it's good. Like, there's a certain sort of person in an office who needs a guy like that. Like, I'm not trying to bash people like that. Like, there is a certain sort of person in an office setting who needs a guy who is just going to riff on Will Ferrell and Anchorman. You know, like, there's a certain sort of person who, like, thinks in very linear terms, who doesn't really have what it takes to comprehend, like, somebody can just make up a joke. 
based on what's going on right now. Like there's a person who can't like, and, and I'm not bashing them. They just can't really comprehend that. They might be really good at math. They're probably really good at something I'm not good at, but they can't really comprehend the idea that somebody they know could come up with a joke on the fly. So the fact that there's a guy there who can do a Will Ferrell impression is exactly what they need. Those are the conservatives of office comedy. (laughs) And in my experience, they're not necessarily politically conservative. Often they're not. The ones I'm talking about aren't. And then you have people in the office who like what they find genuinely funny is on the fly, improvised new comedy. And that's actually progressive. You know, that's actually the progressive approach to office comedy. So it's funny how all this plays out. But you can become conservative or progressive just for the sake of it. And you can become that way about anything. Because, I mean, like, comedy isn't funny if you're just trying to do something new. Like, just trying to be weird. Just trying to be avant-garde. Like, not everybody can be Andy Kaufman. You know, not everybody can just be successful at avant-garde comedy and do something, quote-unquote, I I hate to even use that phrase, but, like, not everybody can be avant-garde for the sake of being avant-garde. And I would say Andy Kaufman wasn't just for the sake of it. He managed to find that little narrow sliver and and, and fit through it. You know, he managed to do that. Some people have managed to do that. Not everybody can. So when some when like when comedy is purposely weird for the sake of being weird without actually resting on anything tangible, like when it's just like it's for example, like people who find like word salad funny. You know, it's like the banana lotion t- I'm just looking at objects around here. The banana lotion seal walked... It's like ad-libs. The banana lotion seal walked into the volcanic uh, bird's nest. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of stupid shit that people... That you'll still see. Like, I was watching old episodes of The State, that MTV show a while back, which was funny for its time especially, but sometimes they would fall on that. Sometimes they would, like, revert to that kind of humor where... There was a scene I was watching, and then all of a sudden somebody was like, and then a truckload of radishes gets dumped in the living room. And that's exactly what happened. And I was like, that's so stupid. That's like progressivism gone wrong. That's being like, we can do anything, so guess what we're going to do? Anything. But it's not going to be funny or interesting, which is why, like, out of nowhere, somebody goes... A truck full of radishes gets dumped in the living room, you know, and it's like, I hate that kind of humor. And I feel like I probably run the risk of doing it. Someone probably listens to this show and thinks like, oh, that guy, Eric, the the schoolboy, his entire sense of humor is like, because I like absurd comedy, but absurd comedy has to rest on something. It has to come from something tangible. And that's, and I'm not some comedy expert. I'm not even a comedian. I'm not even a comedian, but it's like, still, it's like, there is this narrow sliver that things have to fit through, I feel like, in order to be effective. And like just like random humor. Oh, that's so random. You know, that's not funny to me in the same way that like progressivism for the sake of progressive progressivism, just to be able to say that you're changing things. Because that's what progressivism is if it doesn't have the counterweight of conservatism. Is it's someone changing things just to change them because they don't feel good. Or they're bored. 
And then conservatism, just for the sake of conservatism, is becoming attached to everything exactly the way it is because you're so scared of everything else and you don't know who you would be in the face of something else, which is why those two things need each other, politically for sure, as well as just the natural tendencies because that's what they are. In the same way people think that like man created society or, or, sorry, rather, in the same way people think society created man to be a certain way, they forget that man created society, which created more men. They think that conservatism and progressivism are just these exclusively political outgrowths when those things are natural tendencies that play out everywhere. In the same way I'm talking about male-on-male competition playing out in the arts, although more subtly, It plays out in the arts. It plays out among nerds. It plays out among, like, it's going on in art schools across the country. I I can't even imagine the level of, (laughs) I can't even imagine the level of, I never went to art school, but I can't imagine the level of, like, competition burning below the surface that never quite quite build so it comes out in all kinds of underhanded and catty ways because I've experienced that on my own just through being an artist and so that tendency plays out in all these different ways that conservative tendency plays out in all of these ways and progressive tendencies and you need it all like none of it is bad none of it is inherently bad and I think that's where people run into trouble is they they think that these things exist in a vacuum and they think that some of these things are inherently bad depending on which vacuum they're in at any given time you know and so all these things they come from a much more natural place and all of these things also exist inside of you like I guarantee you, no matter who you are, you are conservative about some things, not necessarily politically. You are progressive about some things, not necessarily politically. You are competitive about some things. You are non-competitive about other things. All of these things play out inside of you. And when you start to understand that, I think you become whole. You start to have better control over these things. You don't start to feel threatened because another man made a joke after you made a joke. You, 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 you no longer feel threatened just because someone wants to change something. And you, know, you no longer feel threatened when someone says, don't change anything. Don't mess with this. When you start to understand how these forces work inside of you, as well as how they work outside of you, and together and in opposition with other people, you start to understand the ways that you can meaningfully use these qualities to your benefit and hopefully the benefit of everybody. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains 